It is 32 degrees in New York City right now. It's 33 in Montreal. It's 33 in Philadelphia. 34 in Ottawa. In London, Ontario. Do we keep the count going? No, actually, we're at 32. Whew, nice, chilly 32. Huh. It's not chilly, and it hasn't been. Now, we are expecting the heat to break later on tonight. Good for the London majors, who are about to start four games in four days. But 32 degrees, and it's been warm for an awfully long time. We go almost a week now of heat wave-like conditions. It's Thursday already. This week tends to move quickly. So here's the question. You look at the very sad situations happening in Montreal, in Quebec, where we have a number of deaths. We've had numbers that are now over 20. We're talking about deaths. And these are heat-related deaths. And we're going to hear more stories about that as, unfortunately, these deaths are uncovered. When we look at the winter, wherever we live in Canada, what do we always make sure we have? We always make sure the heat works. Get that furnace tuned up. Make sure that those propane tanks are filled if that's the way you heat. Make sure that that boiler system is working out okay. In the summer... Well, if you're lucky, you have air conditioning, but we tend to have a whole lot more colder days than we do warmer days, right? But this stuff, this is oppressive. Talk to anybody who lives in an apartment building who does not have air conditioning, and they'll show you a thermometer that hits 35 degrees. And you can talk to anybody. Once you get above 25, it's difficult to get the hamster in the wheel in your brain moving. It's just one of those cases of, oh, I got to stop. So, should we be making air conditioning mandatory? Should air conditioning be a right? In just a few minutes, we are going to be in conversation with the president of the London Property Management Association, and we'll look at actually what the rules are right now. There are no rules that are hard and fast that come from the Landlord-Tenant Act that say, hey, if the temperature is above this, you have to give some cooling measures. You have to provide your tenants with this. You have to run ice to their apartments. No, that's not what it is. So we'll get the actual rules on that. But overall, what do you think? Should air conditioning be a right? When we have people who are dying from heat-related reasons, you've got a real issue on your hands. And a lot of it stems from the fact that they just don't have anywhere else that they can go. The homeless population suffers at times like this. And if you look at the forecasters, you can go back in time and find when the earth was a whole lot hotter than it was now. But we're expecting more periods of time like this going forward. Global warming is a thing. The temperature is going up. That's been proven. Maybe in the future we start to see it come down, but right now, not so much. Let's open the phones on this. Should air conditioning be a right? Should it be something that landlords have to put in? Should it be something that all businesses have to have for their employees? Just for stretches like this? Because tonight, if that cold front that John Wilson has been talking about comes right on through, it's going to feel a whole lot better. 
And we're going to start to say, yeah, turn off the air conditioning. I can't wait. We've had our air conditioning on. We're lucky enough to have it at home. We've had it on for about six days. I don't like it. I'm not a fan of air conditioning. I can't wait to open the windows. Give me a cross breeze any day. But there hasn't been much of a cross breeze. And with the humidity stretching into the 40s, it's too hot. And I can't imagine having to go day after day after day without it. Should it be a right? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Let's begin things with Marilyn. Marilyn, are you sitting with the birds in air-conditioned comfort? Yes, of course I am. I got a mouthful of crackers right now. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Well, I think they should be mandatory um, air conditions. Uh, conditioners should be mandatory in every apartment building. I was out yesterday, and I thought I would die. I went to the hairdressers, from the hairdressers to the grocery store, and got a ton of groceries. Went to the drugstore and got my uh, uh, prescription for a shot. And uh, by the time I got home, I thought I would just collapse. And that's because it is so hot. Well, absolutely. And I heard something this morning about uh, old people not sweating. Well, Is that right? I, you know what? I don't know a lot about the human anatomy, Marilyn, but I do know that everybody sweats. Well, I know I sure sweat buckets. My clothes were just wringing wet. I sweat a lot anyways. But anyhow, I just can't take this weather. I love the winter. Marilyn, it'll be here before we know it. You know what? We'll be complaining about the cold. Thanks for the call. Well, I never (laughs) complain about cold. No? Okay. Well, other people will will be complaining about the cold. Yeah, that's it, too. Okay, (laughs) honey. Take care. Have a great day. 519-643-2222. Should air conditioning be a right? We live in one of those strange places where we can see minus 30 and we can see plus 30. All at the same time. All in the same calendar year. And depending on where you are, you know what? You're going to have some pretty crazy temperature swings. But when it gets this hot for this long, and we do live in essentially a bowl. So we've got a lot of slow-moving weather systems that take their time getting through. And when they finally do, we've had a heat wave like the one that we're experiencing now. Should it be a right For air conditioning, should anyone who owns a building, a property, a business have to put it in, in Canada? Do we have enough of this? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Up next, we'll see what the rules actually are for landlords and what tenants should be able to ask for as we talk with Lisa Smith, president of the London Property Management Association. She's coming up on London Live on Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Still a warm day absolutely everywhere, it seems, in the Northeast It's been awfully hot for a long time. We are going to talk in just a moment with Lisa Smith, president of the London Property Management Association. 32 degrees in New York. Coming up in about 25 minutes, you'll want to hear from this guy. He was in New York yesterday celebrating July 4th at Coney Island. What happened at Coney Island? Nathan's hot dog eating contest. He is the president of Major League Eating. His name is Rich Shea. And he's going to talk to us about how a human being 
can consume 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes and not just live to talk about it, talk in interviews for about 45 minutes. So we'll talk about competitive eating because you've seen it. Every year they come out with the, hey, look at the hot dog eating contest at Coney Island. And this person ate 30 hot dogs and this person ate 40 hot dogs and oh, a new record. Joey Chestnut yesterday, fitting name, ate 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes. So Rich Shea is coming up from Major League Eating. And don't go thinking that Rich is going to make light of this. This actually has become a very serious business. Competitive eating. So 25 minutes from now, we'll talk with Rich. Right now, we're looking at whether or not air conditioning should be a right. Anybody who can put it in, should they put it in? We still live in Canada. I mean, what do you do with a heat wave? You wait it out. This isn't Dallas. We're not going to sit and roast forever. This isn't Florida. There will be a break in the heat, and not just in some thunderstorm that happens to come by. Storm chasers are out right now. There are some in the Stratford area hoping to catch a thunderstorm or two. We do have the potential out there, and we'll keep you posted from our 980 CFPL newsroom as to whether or not anything serious develops. But in terms of the heat... We wait it out, it goes away. But during that time, things can get not just very difficult, things can get very dangerous. So when we're looking at apartment buildings all around London, we're seeing people who some have access to air conditioning, like Marilyn was telling us, some don't. And with that comes a pretty difficult sleep at night when you're trying to cool down and 35 degree indoor temperatures. What are the rules on this? Let's get to those. Lisa Smith is the president of the London Property Management Association and joins us now. Lisa, how are you? Very good. How are you doing today, Mike? Not too bad. I'm pretty lucky. I'm feeling really lucky. I'm sitting in an air-conditioned studio. <laughs> exactly. Well, we have... Very lucky. We do have people who are not as lucky, and we can look at some of the really sad stories out of Quebec, where we now have over 20 people who have been found dead because of the heat wave there. And we want to look at air conditioning itself and rental properties and how mm-hmm. exactly they go hand in hand, because you have to provide heat for tenants, correct? That is correct. But not necessarily air conditioning? No. Okay. When this comes up in meetings or discussions, what sorts of things are talked about? When it comes to air conditioning, it comes up to the individual landlord. Under um, the lease, there's um, like our, our lease that we have, our additional terms and conditions, there's a section about air conditioners and that the tenants typically are not supposed to have them without written consent. So they just need to have written consent. And then some landlords charge like a seasonal fee to kind of cover the cost of hydro sure now typically how it works as far as a a seasonal fee goes is that something that falls under the landlord tenant act or is that just one of those kind of agreement things between landlords and tenants yep it's an agreement between the landlord and the tenant typically the the most i've ever really heard is about 50 dollars a month to pay for the additional cost of hydro and then how do landlords bring that up? Do they put a notice on the door, under the door? No, how it is, it's actually in their lease agreement. It states that. And so if they want to put an air conditioner in and the landlord wants to do a, an extra charge for it, then they just do an amendment to it. And it's just like an individual contract that just states that they're going to have an air conditioner from these months to these months. 
and it's an additional $50 that will be applied to their account. We're talking with Lisa Smith, president of London Property Management Association. We're looking at air conditioners in rental properties and kind of the nuts and bolts of all of it. Now, in terms of property management, if a new management company comes in, can that change the way that things work? Can they say, hey, we don't want those outdoor air conditioners. Please get rid of those or anything like that? Unless there's an an agreement with the, the tenant, no, they can't come in and say, you know, you have to get rid of them, but they can come in and say, no, there is an additional fee. Right, okay. Because in the, in the terms and conditions of our lease, at least, it states that they have to have written consent and there could be a charge. This all seems to be boiling down to something very important. Read your lease. Absolutely. That can, that can be very helpful, can't it? Yes, absolutely. Always read something before you sign it. Now, do you get complaints from tenants often that may not have access to air conditioning? No, no, because that would be up to themselves. You know, if they want to put an air conditioner in, I'm, I'm not, I've never heard of a, of a landlord that would not allow someone to put an air conditioner in because really, you know, they can put one in and then charge them a, a monthly fee. And I guess finally, are there ever discussions about mandating cooling, like heating is mandated? No, I've never heard of that. Never heard of that. Okay. Not this stage. Not this stage. Yeah. Well, if uh, the temperature keeps rising on this old earth of ours, maybe it'll come up. But Lisa, thanks so much for, for all of the information today. You're very welcome. Stay cool. You too. Lisa Smith, president of the London Property Management Association. So here's the way that that breaks down. It is an agreement between the person who's going to rent and the landlord read your lease agreement, but they have to provide heat. That's not even up for debate. You have to provide heat. We do wind up having a whole lot more colder months or cool months, months that would need heat, than we really do months that you would need air conditioning. But the question off the start of the show, is air conditioning a right? Should it be? Is this something that you absolutely should have access to? The Middlesex London Health Unit does a very good job creating cooling centers where necessary because, again, if you're dealing with oppressive heat and you are homeless, you need somewhere to go to cool down. If you are dealing with oppressive heat and you are on a fixed income and maybe can't afford an air conditioner or can't afford, Lisa suggested, $50 a month for the added electricity costs because air conditioning, not free. And you notice that in your electric bill, After a week like this, and an email from Al, Al says, I personally think the idea of AC being a right is ridiculous, but if we're going to spend any time discussing this, here's a thought. We currently do a terrible job providing affordable housing. I'd focus on that before any talk about ACs. Making the hydro that runs ACs affordable would be another good step. Let's walk before we run. And Al brings up a great point. You know, we have some serious issues with waiting lists. We have some serious issues with the amount of affordable housing that we have, even in London, Ontario. But when you look at the week that has just gone by and the idea that it's been awfully, awfully warm and we're going to see more and more of these extreme temperatures, and you certainly want to avoid what we've been seeing in Quebec, where we have had death after death after death, and they have all been contributed to the or attributed to the extreme heat that has been affecting them as much as it's been affecting us, 
you start wondering, okay, well, well, how do we do this? But yeah, let's let's walk before we run. That's excellent, excellent advice. Coming up in a little less than an hour, we're going to be dealing with the story of the Godrich salt mine. I don't know if you've been following this too closely. It is getting to be a difficult situation. The idea that you've got workers at the Goderich salt mine who have now been on strike for 10 weeks. And they've been on strike not because they're looking for more money. They have been on strike because you've had a company that has taken over the salt mine. They're from the United States. And they basically said, okay, here's what we want to experiment with in the salt mine. Uh, 12-hour shifts, and not 12-hour shifts of two days on, two days off, just 12-hour shifts. How about a five- or six-day work week at 12 hours a day? So 60, 72 hours a week. That's something that they have been looking at. And this is not seasonal work. This is a case of that's what they want to try to do. So workers, for that reason, for other reasons, have gone on strike. And now you've had that company bring in replacement workers. So things are certainly hot all around the province, on into the Atlantic region, on into the eastern seaboard of the United States. They're especially warm in Godrich for that reason. So we will head there and we'll get some information on that. And also coming up on the show today at about 2.40, we're going to talk with a researcher out of Montreal. And he is somebody who's been working hard, creating something that you would say, well, couldn't we create something else first? But this is kind of interesting. He's been working to create an invisibility cloak. And he's at the point, this is like Harry Potter stuff. He's at the point where he says, you know what? I think we can pull this off. So that's coming up as well. But Rich Shea from Major League Eating is on the way in about 10 minutes. Leanie Lambrink is next. She'll have news. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Hey, if you live anywhere near Ilderton, Scott Moyer tweeted today that they are going to be putting on a thank you Ilderton event next month. Right now, Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue have been in Japan and in Europe doing a whole lot of skating shows. Well, they're going to be back, and they're going to be back in time for August the 4th, and they will be having a parade. They've got surprise bands, they say, so it'll take place Saturday, August the 4th from 3 o'clock until 10 o'clock and we'll see if we can get Scott or Tessa or Scott and Tessa to come in and and sit in this nice air-conditioned studio if it was 35 degrees at that point maybe we'd have a good shot at it we'll see if we can do that we have a really strange thing coming up in about five minutes Rich Shea is going to join us he's the president of Major League Eating That's not a thing. Yes, it is. Yes, that's a thing. Major League Eating is definitely a thing. But we were talking about air conditioning just a few minutes ago, and I want to touch on an email that has come in from James. James says, I don't think it should be mandatory for air conditioning to be provided. And he says, I think that landlords should be able to charge $1,000 a month so that poor people can't afford it. That was your logic with the tickets, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I don't mean to laugh about it, but that was that was logic. I think Alan called in with the logic that we can take care of scalping by charging higher prices for tickets. So James weighing in on that. 
If you want to weigh in at any time, you can. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can call us at 519-643-2222 if you're out of town. 1-866-354-8255. You can find me on Twitter at Stubbs980. Anybody have any experience with summer camps? My daughter is a camp counselor. Not at an overnight camp. This is not, we'll go out on the water. This is not the makings of meatballs. Wasn't Meatballs the one that you were away at summer camp? Or what was the other show that they brought back 10 years later about summer camp? There there are a million of them. But she's a camp counselor. And she got home after her first day. And I said, so how did that go? She said, well, it it was interesting. I said, why? She said, well, we spent a lot of our day trying to keep one of the kids from sticking his finger in the light socket. It's a science camp. I... They weren't dealing with electricity and he wanted to? Is that what was happening? I said, oh, okay. You were able to do that though, right? She said, oh, yeah, yeah. And she said, and then um, we had another kid who was working away on what we thought was the little quicksand project that they were doing, only to find out that he wasn't making quicksand. He was making a shiv out of a protractor. And she said, I don't know a lot about shivs, but... This thing was pretty sharp, and he's seven. Is this normal camp counselor stuff? If you've ever been a camp counselor, fingers in the light sockets? I know that doesn't tend to happen to the camps that are predominantly outside. Uh, Kids making shivs at the age of seven. Who at the age of seven knows how to make something like that? So they confiscated it, and uh, he doesn't have any more protractors to play with, but uh, I'm kind of concerned for my daughter right now. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and learn how one goes about eating 74 hot dogs in the span of 10 minutes. So do the math on that. That's 7.4 hot dogs a minute. That's a lot of hot dogs, and you have to keep going. Maybe you could eat 7.4 hot dogs in a minute. But then the next minute, you have to eat another 7.4. You do that for 10 minutes. Well, it happened yesterday, and it set a brand new record. And this is something that is up and up, completely legit. This is Major League Eating. Happened at Coney Island yesterday in the very famous and very annual Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Rich Shea, the president of Major League Eating, joins us next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Oh, were there barbecues on the weekend? Canada Day, barbecues, hamburgers, hot dogs. What is it about a barbecue that makes it taste so much better? You can pan fry a chicken breast, and it tastes like chicken, right? Not in the way alligator tastes like chicken. It tastes like chicken. You barbecue that? Oh, that's good. You pan fry a steak? You have some shoe leather. Smells a little like wet dog. Not the most delicious. You barbecue that steak. Oh, oh, that's good. You can do the same thing with hot dogs. And you sit back and maybe on the weekend you enjoyed a hot dog or two. Maybe a hot dog and a hamburger. Then you went for that extra bowl of potato salad. And at the end of that meal, what did you do? You sat back and you went, oh, boy. And you felt it. You felt full. 
Well, every year on July the 4th, Nathan's has a hot dog eating contest. And they don't spend a lot of time barbecuing the hot dogs, but they do prepare them. They're warm. You're not eating cold hot dogs. But they challenge any competitor to try and eat as many hot dogs as they can. And this goes back to records that, for guys, were in 20s, 30s. Then you had Takeru Kobayashi, who was a guy who you would look at and say, there is no way that guy can pack away hot dogs. He's about five foot three, five foot four, 150 pounds, and he's ripped. The guy has abs that you can see. And yet he was able to pack back all kinds of hot dogs. For a while, he was the world record holder. That's been taken to a brand new level. If you go back to yesterday, a couple of big marks were set. On the women's side, Mickey Sudo ate 41 hot dogs and buns. But on the men's side, Joey Chestnut, who took on 20 other men and went after the mustard belt and got it, set a brand new record, 74 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Try and do the physics on that. That should be absolutely impossible. But it happened. And this is something that goes on not just on July the 4th for hot dogs, but happens at other points of the year with different kinds of food and is all wrapped up in something called Major League Eating. Joining us right now is the president of Major League Eating, Rich Shea. Rich, how are you doing? I'm really good. It's, uh, you know, July 5. We had an amazing event yesterday here in uh, New York City out in Coney Island. So uh, everybody's happy, healthy, and, 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 and enjoying the day off or quasi-day off. Good. Well, it's one of those things that just hits the highlights all over the place where no matter which way you turn, you're watching Joey Chestnut eat his 74th hot dog and bun and break a record. And it's become just a tradition. It shows up. Chestnut sometimes breaks a record. (laughs) Seems more often than not. What was it like to be there? It's always an amazing place. I mean, even despite Joey Chestnut and, and Carmen Sincotti and Mickey Sudo and these great, great eaters, it's a, it's a fantastic party out there, you know, uh, although there's no beer or anything. Um, it's just a great sort of, because it's an early morning event, it's just a great gathering, you know, thousands and thousands of people, all kinds of sort of hyperbole and patriotism and stuff. And, uh, and so that's always, a, it's a fun sort of signature event during the 4th of July holiday. And then, and then to see the, the, the mastery of a guy like Chestnut, and that, that's really what people come out to just because it's it's just it's 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 mind blowing to see this guy eat the way he does and, and keep that pace. It's never been seen before. So that's always like even, even though I've seen him eat sixty nine, I saw him eat seventy two, and then all of a sudden he, he he bettered it by by a couple dogs. It's just amazing. Now, Rich, in life there are things that are difficult to get our heads around. If you say to somebody that's worth three point two billion dollars, it's hard to get your head <laughs> around that. If you say someone has eaten seventy four hot dogs in ten minutes. You can't really get your head around that. How would you describe how he does it? Uh, I mean, it's well. This is the thing. It, you know, in the broadcast, it says it's not a parlor trick. It's not sleight of hand. It's just it's just an incredible ability that he has. He eats, he takes two hot dogs uh, out of their bun. 
He eats the two hot dogs, then he eats two buns, and then he just keeps that pace. He was doing seven and a half, seven, seven and a half to eight dogs per minute. We call it DPM, and and I, I'll be honest, I don't know. It's capacity. I think I, I think we we were calling it yesterday. You know, it's just these other guys who have really risen. Um, you know, you got Matt Stoney, Carmen Sincotti, uh, a new guy from Japan named uh, Max Suzuki. They've they've really upped their game, um, but they just can't. Uh, match his capacity. You know, he just has an ability to, to to pack away more food than anybody else in the world. Rich Shea joining us, president of Major League Eating. And for anybody who's listening right now and thinking, come on, this has to be some kind of trick. This, this, it's just, uh, it's a fluke that he does this. Rich, can you explain what goes into the training and the life of a competitive eater? I mean, I, I he's been at this now uh, since. Uh, well, the middle of the last decade. So, so he, he, he first, when I first met him, he ate 26 hot dogs. You know, now he's eating 74. So I think you just get better and better as you go. I don't know how he trains exactly. I don't know what his, his uh, methodology is. I think part of it is, a, again, just inherent skill, uh, physical ability, and a mental capacity. Because I'll tell you what, it, what's, what is actually stunning to me that people don't really talk about enough is yesterday, it could not have been hotter. It was like the it was like being on the sun itself. It was just so blazing hot and also humid, and it had been for a number of days. So there was no there was no let up. There was no wind. Uh, the ability to go out and, and perform, uh, you know, break a record, break your own record in that heat with that crowd is is just stunning. He eats. I actually can't ex- I can't explain it to be honest with you. Rich, he eats seventy four hot dogs. Does he then digest those? Is that part of the regulation? Yeah, I mean, so he- well, yeah, what's interesting is he, uh, people ask this question all the time, and even back in the Kobayashi days, it's stunning, like they sit there, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned the conditions are tough, he does 45 minutes, an hour worth of interviews afterwards, I mean, we actually, interestingly, yesterday we had a, we had a little snafu in the live broadcast because the judging was off, the judges were off by 10 hot dogs, so in the initial broadcast, uh, they had Joey down at 64, so in the, in the ensuing minutes after the contest, there was a judging, you know, so we had to reassess all the numbers, uh, and that's when we found out that Joey actually had eaten two more plates. So there's five hot dogs per plate than than he was uh, than he was credited, and so that extended the thing. So think about that's like a ten minute fix, and then forty five minutes or more of interviews, and he's just standing right there. It's it's an amazing, amazing. Crazy. We are talking with Rich Shea, who is the president of Major League Eating. Rich, as far as competitive eating goes, can you put into perspective how big this is and, and the competitions that go on? Yeah, so we do a number of events, and we have other big events. Uh, we do a protein eating uh, competition up in uh, in Toronto every year. We do an Acme Oyster Eating Championship down in uh, New Orleans every year, and these are well-attended events. We do a Buffalo Wing Festival in Buffalo. Uh, these are, you know, thousands of people go to these events, but the 4th of July is our Masters. You know, that mustard yellow belt is our green jacket. People call it the World Cup, the Super Bowl, but whatever that would be, the, the, the signature day for a sporting event when it comes to our sport, competitive eating, it's the 4th of July without a doubt. It's just way out in front. It's, it's the biggest day in, in our calendar year. What do competitive eaters say about hot dogs? Are they the easiest thing to eat? Would there be something else no. that would be easier? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's plenty of – they actually say it's one of the toughest ones um, because you have the hot dog, which you need to chew, and it's savory, and then you have the bun, which is kind of dry. They get to dunk it for a couple seconds, but they can't dunk it forever, and they drink a lot of water. But they actually say it is one of the hardest ones. And I heard a competitor. We had a we had a thing out in Mattatuck, Long Island, which is all the way out east on the on the island here, and uh, and uh, 
that it's a strawberry shortcake eating championship, and, and the guys say that's one of the easiest ones because it's sort of sweet and light. But no, hot dogs are considered hard. Uh, and, you know, each food, though, poses its challenges over eight minutes or ten minutes, and those are what our typical contest lengths are. So you might like a dozen oysters, but Sonia Thomas ate 47 dozen in eight minutes, and that's just, uh, you know, that's like mollusk overload. Wait a minute. Not 47, 47 dozen? 47 dozen in eight minutes. Oh, yeah, and uh, she actually, uh, she she is the reigning, uh, that's the world record for oysters, um, but she uh, she hasn't repeated that. And, you know, it's like, it, this is another thing that's amazing about Joey. You look at a guy who throws a no-hitter or something, you know, Chris Sale at the Red Sox, he throws a no-hitter, great. You don't expect him to throw a no-hitter the next time he pitches, or, or every time he pitches, and that's what Joey does. You know, he, he plays the perfect game every year, it's just amazing. 74 hot dogs. Go home and try and eat seven hot dogs in 10 don't. minutes. <laughs> don't, don't do this at home. It's a professional sport. Yeah, that, that's, and that's, I guess, what we do have to realize. You can't just all of a sudden jump into this anymore, can you? No, uh, don't. We have, we have safety controls in place. We haven't had to use these guys. We have all kinds of paramedics and stuff because it is uh, obviously a physical activity and, uh, and just like anything else. But, yeah, I wouldn't try it at home. But if you want to try it, visit our website because we do tour around the world and, uh, and we're always looking for new eaters. And where can we send people? MajorLeagueEating.com. Easy as that. MajorLeagueEating.com. <laughs> Rich, just before we go, some of the other foods. You've mentioned oysters. You've mentioned strawberry shortcake. Of course, we've talked about hot dogs. Some of the other popular things for eating competitions. What are they? Uh, you know, the pizza. Uh, really menu items, you know. So uh, we did Hostess Donuts this year, which are those little mini donut things. Those are really good. Uh, but we have pizza, tacos. We have a Fresno, California Taco World Taco Championship. We have ice cream. Uh, eating champion in Indiana here in the U.S. We have, uh, you know, mutton sandwiches, <laughs> uh, all kinds of foods, buffalo wings, obviously. But p- primarily these are items, either they're venerable or indigenous, like a venerable brand like Acme Oyster House or Hooters Wings, um, or indigenous to a region, um, you know, like lobster in Maine. Uh, but but they're, not, they're not typically wacky foods, and that's where kind of some of the awe inspiring things come from. I know what it means to eat one or two hot dogs at a barbecue, so I can only imagine what, you know, I can't imagine it's stunning to see somebody benchmark it at 74. New world record. Rich, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for having me, and I'm sorry if my energy was a little low, but we'll, we'll get it back. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the holiday. Thanks, man. Rich Shea, president of Major League Eating. Okay, we've got to delve into some of these records. You want to know what the record is for pizza in 10 minutes? How many slices? It's Big Apple Pizza. I have no idea where that comes from. I imagine New York. They're based out of New York a lot. 47 slices. That record is held for almost 10 years. Uh, How about how fast could you drink a Slurpee? Think of the brain freeze on this. This is a 22-ounce Sports Slurpee. 7 11 Sports Slurpee. 22 ounces, 9 seconds. Think of the, could it at least be warmed up a little bit? Uh, they have one for bacon, 182 strips in 5 minutes. Um, they did a contest for beef tongue. You shouldn't ever taste anything that can taste you back, right? Three pounds and three ounces of pickled beef tongue in 12 minutes. Somebody named Dominic Cardo has done that. They've got birthday cake. They've got wings, tacos, butter. This is the last one I'll leave you with. If somebody said to you, 
How many quarter pound sticks of salted butter could you eat? You would say none because I would never eat butter all by itself. Well, Don Lerman in five minutes ate seven quarter pound sticks. That's almost two pounds of butter. Major League eating. We'll tell you what's coming up after Lenny Lambrink in the news when we return. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can give me a call, 519-643-2222. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. And I will keep, for everybody who has responded, saying, hey, keep an eye on your daughter at that camp. Andy says, I've been a camp counselor. Those are not things I've typically dealt with. My daughter dealt with a 7-year-old making a shiv out of a protractor and a kid who spent a lot of his day trying to stick his fingers in a light socket. It's science camp, but that's not the science that they want to be teaching at all. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where these kids are coming from. Are these normal things for seven-year-olds to do just at home? Not in our house. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. few more hours left to beat the heat. We will update you with Lini Lambrink. She'll have news coming up in about three minutes as to where thunderstorm activity might be and whether we're watching, whether we're warning. Here's a way not to beat the heat. This is coming out of Calgary, and it is safe to go to 980cfpl.ca or globalnews.ca and read the story because it doesn't have the picture that you don't want it to have. Um, Yesterday in Calgary, there was a call that came into police about a Canada Post truck that was driving down the street, and as it was driving down the street, clothes were being thrown out of the truck. What's going on? Why why would someone throw clothes out of a truck? Well, turns out they were the clothes that belonged to the driver. He was throwing his clothes out of the truck, and very soon he was a naked man driving a Canada Post truck, Unfortunately, he was involved in a collision with between six and ten vehicles, and police are now trying to catch up with him. Uh, He ran away into a nearby neighborhood. He has since been taken into custody, and they're trying to figure out whether or not he had stolen the truck or, again, was just trying to beat the heat on a warm Wednesday in Calgary. He was under the influence of some kind of substance. You can see the story at 980cfpl.ca and at globalnews.ca. Coming up, after news with Lainey Lambrink, we'll talk with Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, about something happening in Godrich where the relatively new owners of a salt mine would like those workers to work 60 and 72-hour weeks. We'll have the story. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. The rain is coming down in downtown London. We'll keep tabs on any storms in the area and let you know just in case we get some thunder. We haven't had too many thunderstorms. I mean, we usually get, what, 24 a year? Isn't that the average? Somewhere around there? 24? That's a lot. So, raining in downtown London. It's interesting how you can make use of information, especially today, because information can be provided in so many different ways. The sports world has two stories right now that are fascinating. One involves the Los Angeles Lakers, who just 
signed LeBron James on Sunday. So LeBron James is going to go out to Los Angeles. If you go back and look at all the clues, he bought a couple of houses. And he'd done this. He'd moved his business here. He'd done that. It all seems to add up. Now he can sit underneath Magic Johnson, and that's good. Magic Johnson, he's a billionaire, isn't he? I think LeBron James said at one point he wanted to be a billionaire. Who doesn't want to be a billionaire? But he actually has it within reach. So the story that deals with information is the leaking of information. And with the Los Angeles Lakers, the allegation is that they leaked out a little information so that, or sorry, that that a player on their team had his camp, because star players have camps now, Lonzo Ball, whose dad is LeVar Ball and is very loud. He's a guy who, when he, when he walks into a room, you know that they leaked out that Lonzo Ball had an injury so that the Lakers would not trade him. And now we get another story that the Ottawa Senators, these are allegations against them, that they're leaking information about what teams are interested in Eric Carlson, who apparently wants out of Ottawa. They've offered him a lot of money. He has said, nah, I don't think so. So the Senators are now being accused of leaking information with the hope to drive up the price for Eric Carlson. Where's Donald Trump to yell out fake news? We need to have him to do that. Two stories to monitor there. We don't have Blue Jays baseball for you tonight because there is no Blue Jays baseball tonight, but they do open up a series tomorrow in New York against the Yankees. We want to go just a little northwest of London right now. We want to go to Godrich because there's a story out of Godrich that's been shaping up for 10 weeks. It's the story of their salt mine and the workers in that mine. That mine has been on strike, at least the workers have, for 10 weeks. Now we have replacement workers that are being brought in. And we've got an opportunity to talk about this entire situation with the man representing the workers or whose organization represents the workers in that salt mine to try and dig into what some of the issues are because dollar signs don't seem to be a big part of the issues. Jerry Dias is the president of Unifor and he joins us. Jerry, it's raining and it's not really cooling things down yet. So how are things on a very warm Thursday? Uh, things are busy as usual. We'll never <laughs> die from boredom around here. No doubt. Well, let's begin in Godrich, where we have had a strike that is now into its 10th week. And if you look at some of the concerns from the outset, money didn't seem to be very high on the list. Well, you've got an employer that's demanding that our workers work a minimum of 60 hours a week, going up to 72 hours in a week. They're also looking to make major changes to our pension plan. They're, out, they're making to make, looking to make major changes in benefits. Uh, they're looking to gut seniority provisions. So this is a U.S.-based employer that, A, doesn't understand Canadian laws, but, B, has very little respect or none for Canadian workers. Now, when they're looking at upping the hours per week to as high as 72, is that because they deem this seasonal work? No, it's not seasonal at all. Uh, they're saying that they need the flexibility, but there's different ways of doing it. You can hire more people. If you need people working 60 hours a week, there is solutions. But ultimately, they put proposals on the table that they know would provoke a dispute. What they're doing is they've hired scabs, if you can imagine, from New Brunswick. 
um, where they are crossing the picket line. They're being bussed in. What the employer is paying the scabs and security and everything else far outweighs the economic package that could be negotiated. That would, you know, would put people back to work. What do you feel is the strategy right now after 10 weeks of bringing in replacement workers? Well, it really is about breaking the union, and it's about breaking the solidarity of not just of our members, but the community of Goderich, and that's not going to happen. Uh, there has been a major escalation on the picket line. Uh, we're moving in um, our uniform members from across the province, and we're providing some incredible solidarity. So, of course, the employer is going to try to have it resolved through the courts because they believe that U.S. employers hiring scabs from New Brunswick have more rights than the employees and citizens of Goderich. So if that's how they believe the laws are going to work, we're going to have something to say about it. Jerry Dias, who is the president of Unifor, joining us as we talk about the strike at the salt mine in Godrich that is now getting into double-digit weeks. And as Jerry mentioned, replacement workers have been brought in from New Brunswick. If their goal is to get this into the courts, take us through how that would even happen if it does. Well, the, the employer has gone and gotten injunctions to limit the amount of people on the picket lines. So they're using the judicial system as a mechanism to bring in scabs from New Brunswick to do our work. So they're using the legal process as a mechanism to thwart free collective bargaining, to give themselves a leg up on the employees who are out on the picket line. So we've got a huge problem here, and ultimately we're not going to allow this dispute to be settled in the court. Uh, We're going to settle it at the bargaining table, and if that means that we're going to have to do everything that we can, which we are doing, to prevent the scabs from getting into the workplace, that's exactly what we're going to do. So, so the company was at the in courts again today, trying to get more injunctions, saying that we're in flagrant violation of the existing injunctions. But ultimately, there's not going to be a legal win here that's going to stop our desire. Would that come down to blockades that they are trying to prevent from being set up? Well, there's a blockade already up. Um, so that blockade... Is, is the mechanism that we are using to keep the scabs out from stealing our jobs. If you look around at other similar situations, are there any that you can point to that would ask workers to do what these workers are being asked to do? Not a chance. I mean, we have employed the Employment Standard Act in, in, in Toronto, or excuse me, in Ontario, uh, that really limits the amount of war, war hours that workers can work. So you've got an employer that doesn't even care about its own employees. It doesn't care about the laws in the province either. So ultimately, the employer is not going to be successful. The only question is when there will be a settlement, not if there will be a settlement. And I guess one of the other things we've got to bring in is these workers are not sitting at tables uh, monitoring sheets of paper. They're in a salt mine. Are there safety factors for working long hours? Oh, there's no question about this, but this is about corporate greed. It doesn't have anything to do with common sense. I mean, how an employer can even suggest that they're going to submit and mandate their employees to work 60 hours a week in a mine is just absolutely outrageous. It shows what little concern they really do have for people. But ultimately, they're not going to be successful. Uh, We need to find a negotiated settlement, and by bringing in scabs uh, to do our work, uh, they are certainly putting, you know, putting lives at risk, and they are certainly dealing uh, with a situation because mines, you better know what you're doing if you're going to work in a mine. This isn't, uh, uh, this isn't uh, doing a, a regular job in a manufacturing facilities or, or working in the retail wholesale section. This is dangerous work. 
Jerry Dias, president of Unifor, joining us. Jerry, before we let you go, we have talked several times over the last few weeks about NAFTA, and we have seen the list of products that will now see 10% increase in price come out as of July 1st. There are a lot of things on that list. What can you tell us about the effect of the tariffs, the impact of the tariffs? Well, there's no question it's going to have a negative impact, especially if the United States moves forward and slaps a 25% tariff on auto. Um, the the tariffs that are imposed by Canada is a straight retaliation as to what the U.S. is doing. And frankly, I'll argue we have absolutely no choice here. Uh, since August of last year, the United States has come after our softwood lumber industry, paper, aerospace, steel, aluminum, and now they're talking about auto and auto pants, plants. You are going after the major industries of the country. The number one export industry is auto. Number two is oil and energy. Number three is our forestry sector. So they are going after the key industries that make up our successful economy. And we have no choice but to fight back. Is there going to be a negative impact on consumers? The answer is yes. But that that comes with us making better decisions, being more consumer conscious, buying goods that are made in Canada, and frankly, retaliating and sticking together as a nation. Um, as we're in this fight with the United States. What are the options in the auto sector right now in terms of retaliation or in terms of, of trying to limit what will be? It looks like a, a pretty difficult thing to deal with. Well, it is going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, but the problem that the United States has is we put more American auto parts in Canadian assembled vehicles than Canadian auto parts. Um, the number where does the United States sells most of their vehicles outside of the United States to Canada, where they're number one export country. Um, trade overall with Canada, the United States has a surplus. Trade overall, like we're the number one trading partner for 30 U.S. states. So the U.S. may be coming after us for whatever reason, who knows. But ultimately, it's going to have a negative impact on themselves as well. I mean, the unfortunate reality is Donald Trump is using this strictly for political purposes. He's not viewing it as the economic carnage that it is going to create on both sides of the border. He's expecting that by having a trade war with the world, that this will give him the leg up that he needs uh, for the U.S. midterm elections in November. I would suggest that when he ends up with, with a numerous amount of unemployed Americans who are collateral damage to his school's policies, uh, that his uh, election platform uh, will likely not be successful. Jerry, thank you so much for your time. One thing that I do want to mention, you did launch iShop Canada recently. Uh, maybe give us the, the framework of that. It really is about us sticking together. It's hashtag iShop Canada. Uh, what we're urging is for Canadians to hold the product that you manufacture, hold the product that you produce, get in a picture with your coworkers, post it online. It's about educating Canadians as to the different options and opportunities we have. It really is about us saying, listen, we are dealing with a U.S. administration that is potentially dangerous. But us as a nation, if we stick together, we can be successful in our fight back attempt. So this is about us sticking together as a nation and doing everything we can to assist others in small communities that deserve their jobs as much as everybody else does. Jerry, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure is always mine. Jerry Diaz, president of Uniform. So a lot of things to deal with there. Of course, the strike will be worked out one way or another. That isn't going to the courts yet, but things are certainly getting a whole lot trickier now in the 10th week than what they were earlier. But a couple of other things to deal with, one being 
the tariffs that have been placed on so many different products. And the list is long. We've gone through it a couple of times already this week. I'm not going to spend time going through it. But there are a lot of things. This is not just auto sector. This is not just steel and aluminum. This is a lot of stuff that is going up in price because now we've got as big a trade war as what we've seen in years. What Jerry says is we need to stick to Canada. We need to buy Canadian. Here's the question. How much of an effort do you make right now to buy Canadian, to buy local? You find yourself going to even more markets. You go to Western Fair Farmer's Market. You go down to Covent Garden Market. You buy fruits and vegetables in spots like that. Are you looking at where your product comes from before you buy it? Or does it still ultimately just come down to price? Because some of the products are still going to be much cheaper because of where they're manufactured. Even a tariff is not necessarily going to raise that price enough. So where do you find that you're doing your shopping? Let's open up the phones for a few minutes. How much of an effort are you making to buy local and to buy Canadian? I'd love to know. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. How much of an effort do you make to buy local right now? And do you expect that to increase in the next while? Especially during however long this trade war lasts. 519-643-2222. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at Stubbs980. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We were just talking with the president of Unifor, Jerry Diaz, and we closed out with hashtag iShopCanada, where Unifor is saying, hey, if you make something that is a local product, that is a Canadian-made product, take a picture of it with your workforce, with anyone who helped to create it, and then post that with the hashtag iShopCanada, just to get the message out there that, hey, this is made here, or this is grown here. So here's the question. How much of an effort do you find yourself making to shop Canadian? We've been hearing the words buy local, buy local, buy local for a long time. Do you do it? I'd like to do more of it, but you know what? I, I don't, and I should, and I know that. Got an email from Candace. Candace says, I'd like to tell you that I buy all my food from local sources. I do go to a market once a week or once every couple of weeks, but sadly it comes down to time and convenience. I don't have the time to hit four or five spots to do my weekly shopping. I wish I did. Candace, I'm in complete agreement. Sounds like my life. 519-643-2222. Let's go to the phones. John. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? Pretty good, thanks. Good. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, we're from Heron County, so it, it, even if groceries or anything, it's Heron County first, Ontario, Canada, you know, you do the best you can. And I know I spend more money on groceries than I need to, but I want to buy local. Now, when you say you spend more money, this is always interesting, because I think that almost sounds like a deterrent, but then you realize, you know what, it's not like you're paying, paying double, right? No, no. Like, you know, because we're buying, we also like to buy organic, too. So it's, you know, you're, you're going to pay a little bit more, but you've got to buy local. you gotta, you got to support your local businesses first. 
And, John, how do you find that goes in trying to do it? Are you, as Candace said in her email, uh, hitting four or five different spots to do your weekly shopping? No. No, no. We go to one spot. Well, we go to a market and then, and you know, to, to a grocery store, obviously. But, you know, you can only do so much. I'm not, I'm not going to drive to London to, to get stuff, right? But you find yourself making a concerted effort to buy local or at least buy Canadian. Oh, all the time. John, thanks yep. for the call. Yep. Take care. See? And as John says, it, it's not adding a huge amount. Is it a little bit more expensive? <sighs> yeah, but maybe we have to put it into this perspective. If we go back far enough in time, and you have to go back a long way, what if we had never had imports of things like fruits and vegetables? What if that had never been a thing? What if we had never been able to look and say, look at how much cheaper that corn is that's come from Mexico and has ripened on the back of a truck? Mmm, delicious. We wouldn't have that comparison. And you would think, well, this is what this costs. It's almost like those hydro discussions that you have with somebody in Europe, where you really might not realize how much they are paying, and they might look at your bill and say, I can't believe you're paying so little. If you don't have that comparison right in front of you, you can't make it. So what if we had never had that? What if we had grown local? And let's face it, if you bite into a locally grown piece of fruit or a locally grown vegetable, you know it because it does taste different. A lot of the stuff that we eat right now is tasteless. So you're actually helping out a local farmer, local producer, if we're talking about fruits and vegetables, which right now is kind of the, the easy example to pick. But you're also getting better food. Does it cost more? Yes. Does it cost a lot more? No. No, it doesn't cost a lot more, but you're not going to be buying the cheapest thing out there on the market. So how much of a concerted effort do you find yourself making when it comes to buying local? What if it's something different? I mean, there have been stickers on vehicles for a while that allude to buying local or not buying foreign. Do you look into that? Do you, do you pay attention to those things? Or when you go to buy, are you ultimately looking for the best deal? That's how we've been trained. Well, let's, let's find the best deal. Don't necessarily take the cheapest price because you might be dealing with the cheapest product, but you want to find a good deal. You want to find something that makes sense for you. How much of an effort are you making? 519-643-2222. 519-643-2222. If you are on hold, please stay on hold. We'll get to you in just a minute. We've got a break for news. Lenny Lambrink has that. And then we are going to be talking in our next half hour about something that sounds absolutely crazy. But would it be something you'd spend all kinds of money for? I don't know. It's an invisibility cloak. Like the one from Harry Potter? I don't know. That's the way it's being described. But there's no way that it's an invisibility cloak like the one in Harry Potter. That can't be a real thing. That was a kid's movie. That was a kid's book. No, that's not a thing. Well, we'll talk to somebody who believes he's on track to actually making it happen. Are you making a concerted effort to buy local? We'll continue that conversation in just a minute as well. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Email from Charlie says, I'd love to buy local. 
but my budget won't allow me. Another one that says, I never started buying foreign, so I have no issues buying local. I've been doing it all my life. I will continue to do it for the rest of my life. That one comes in from Steve. How much of an effort are you making? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Coming up, we're going to talk about an invisibility cloak, an actual invisibility cloak, believe it or not. I don't know how close we are to this, but apparently it's a possibility and money is being spent to make it happen. We've got all kinds of rain in the downtown core in London, and things are coming down hard. So if you are out on some area highways or you're headed in that direction, it is going to be, it looks like, a rainy ride for a little while, and visibility might not be fantastic. One of the wildest stories, maybe even wilder than an invisibility cloak, is coming out of Gresham, Oregon. There's a high school at Gresham, Oregon, and... They were bulldozing it. They were knocking it down. And as crews were kind of going through this, they happened to find a wallet. And they opened the wallet and realized, you know what? This isn't a wallet that somebody on the crew dropped just today. Uh, This thing goes back a while. In fact, it had a student ID card. It had a library card. And most telling, it had a receipt in it. And the receipt came from Giorgio's Pizza, where someone had bought what they called a giant pizza for $4.35. That's a good deal. We should all go to Giorgio's. Well, sure, if you could rewind the time to 1970, because that's when the receipt came from. And thanks to the information age that we live in, they took this wallet, they took the ID card that had the student's name on it, and they actually reached out to Carrie Henry. And they have reunited her with her lost wallet from 48 years ago. Carrie says, I got a message on Facebook via messenger from someone who is the principal of Gresham High School, or who had been until they knocked it down. And she says, I didn't even remember losing a wallet, but realized I must have. It's been 48 years. And a giant pizza, in case you're heading for Giorgio's, It's not $4.35. It's not even $14.35 anymore. But she's been reunited with her wallet. One day, just maybe, we can all be reunited with our invisibility cloaks. What would the world become if we could all run around being invisible? I don't think that's a very good idea. But we'll talk with a man who believes if somebody wants it, he can maybe make it happen. That's next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Without imagination, we don't have invention, right? How many things is Star Trek credited for? I never really watched Star Trek, so I don't know. But the cell phone, right? Isn't that a Star Trek thing? Someone has said, well, they had these little transponder-type things that look a lot like cell phones that we use now. So without somebody suggesting something, how do we even get it? How do we even create it? Well, how far can we go on that? Let's think back to a little J.K. Rowling, shall we? Whoa! My body's gone! I know what that is! That's an invisibility cloak! It sure is! Sure is, Ralph Weasley!
No, is it Ralph Weasley? Is that what it is? Is he? I'm losing Ron Weasley. That's it. See, I got to brush up on on my Harry Potter. Ron Weasley and Harry Potter and an invisibility cloak. But you know what? No, that's just the movies. In fact, it was just a book. You can make anything happen in a book. Watch this. If anyone wants to publish this, Ron Weasley jumped off the cliff and started to fly. Look at look at that. You make anything happen. It's just words. And then it's just special effects. There's no way that that could be real. Well, just a second. Because there is a hint or two that it just might be closer to real. Maybe real. Maybe possible. A team of researchers in Montreal has been working on this. And one of those researchers is Jose Azana, and we're lucky enough to have him with us now. Jose, how are things? Hello, how are you? Um, nice talking to you. Great talking with you. Okay, an invisibility cloak. Of all the things that we would expect to come out of a movie, you could look at a spaceship, you could look at some crazy piece of clothing, you could look at, at some crazy food invisibility no way how how would you describe what you've been working on well you know the topic of invisibility is not new to science uh, i have to say um i mean invisibility the, the reason why we see an object is uh, is because there is an interaction between the an illumination and uh, between the waves that um, illuminate the object and the object itself so that the object will distort this wave and you will be able to see it. So, so there is a phenomenology uh, behind it. So there is a phenomenon, a physical phenomenon. And when there is a physical phenomenon, it's just a question of understanding it deeply and then to try to control it to be able to do things with it. So, so for, for many, many years, for decades, um, scientists, we have been trying to uh, get um, um, to the point of uh, doing things in, invisible, uh, of, of, of getting um, to control invisibility. Of, of so, 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 so this is something that is not entirely new um, to science at all, and there has been a lot of work done uh, on the topic. Now, we, we have taken an important step forward. Uh, in, in this direction. So, so, so if you want, we can, we can discuss about that. Let's do it. We're talking with Jose Azana, who is a co-author of a study that has come from a team of researchers in Montreal, and what they're trying to do is turn an object invisible. So you say that there has been a step taken. What step is that? Yeah, uh, you know, if you try to make an object invisible, basically what you have to avoid is the interaction between the wave the light and the object. Okay, so there has been a lot of a lot of, a lot of different approaches to try to get that, but they they all face a, a, a similar main critical problem, which is the fact that they they work very very well when you illuminate the object with a single frequency, a single color. 
Okay? But that's not what we have in reality. In reality, in most practical cases, you will be illuminating the object with a collection of colors. So uh, just thinking, for instance, in our own eye as the observer, uh, what we see is white light, which has all possible colors or possible uh, frequencies in what we call the visible spectrum. Okay? So, so this, is, this is the reality. So if something, what, what happened with the, with the previous uh, cloak devices is that they will fail when you start putting more than one color together because the cloak itself will distort the wave. So you will see that there is something in the way of the waves. You won't get the effect of invisibility that you are looking for. Now, we have proposed a new concept, uh, a new conceptual way to approach the problem that uh, that has allowed us to demonstrate for the first time the possibility of uh, uh, invisibility, uh, of full invisibility, uh, uh, under um, an illumination with, um, with, with a, f a full range of colors, so, so with many frequencies simultaneously. And in our approach, uh, what we will get is that this wave that is multicolored, that has many, many colors, will propagate through the object. and. Uh, we we'll go through it as if the object was not there, so with no interaction at all. At all. Even though we have many, many colors, so we have overcome that principal and fundamental difficulty in uh, trying to uh, achieve and develop an invisibility cloak. Okay, so you've got normal light that would go at something, and then the same waves come through the other side. Is that how we're understanding it? Exactly. That's the perfect way to do it. But we don't have to be limited to a single color. Actually, our approach is a multicolor approach in contrast to um, the, the, the most conventional ways to do it, where uh, basically for multicolor waves, they will start failing. So in this case, you actually go through the object and the wave is not affected, even though the wave can have as many colors as, as, as you want in principle. You can design your cloak to operate on, a, on, on any um, uh, multicolor light. So as we're talking with Jose Azana, who's a part of a team of researchers in Montreal who have taken a big step toward rendering something invisible. So in this particular instance, when you did this, could you see the object that you had involved in the research? No, no, no. This, this has been a very basic experiment, as, as it is the case for any scientific proof of concept, because we are starting from the proposal of the concept. So we do a very basic experiment under very controlled conditions to be able to claim that uh, we have validated our main hypothesis of how this works. And uh, in this experiment, we have proved that when we send these multicolor lights to an object, an object that will absorb some of these colors and uh, we'll let the others pass. Uh, so if there is no cloak and you look at the wave as it is transmitted through the object, the wave uh, will be distorted because some of these colors will be absorbed. So we have equipment uh, that will look at this light, um, uh, very accurate equipment to be able to characterize the, characterize the wave at the output of the object and we will see that the wave has been uh, strongly affected by propagation through this object because of the absorption of certain colors. However, when we put our cloak, when we use our cloak there, what we will see is that the original multicolor light will propagate through the object without distortion. The detectors that we have at the output, looking at this, will see the exact 
same wave that was launched into the object, so with no distortion at all. So we've made effectively the object invisible. Wow. And you just used the word cloak. So are you creating something that could be a an actual invisibility cloak that someone could move around in, or would that take a whole other step in your research? Well, yes, this, this, this will take another step because what we have developed, uh, we have demonstrated um, our concept by illuminating the object in one direction from a very specific angle, okay? And, and looking at what happened, you know, at the light leaves the object in that specific angle. Now, when you talk about a cloak, uh, you will be thinking in that illumination that is coming from everywhere. So it's an illumination that is coming from every angle, okay? So, so the next step in our research will be to uh, try to see and demonstrate if this concept can be extended to this multi-angular illumination, uh, to uh, the real illumination that we can have in, in, in real life, uh, what we call uh, a three-dimensional illumination. Now, we are confident. We want to believe it is, uh, that's going to be the case, but that's just an hypothesis. Like, um, for anything in science, you have to demonstrate that hypothesis. You have to work around them. And, and you have to find out if there is any challenge to be overcome to get there. So, but that will be our next step. And when you look at how long this particular set of research has taken, uh, how long have you been working on this? Well, you know, this is, this is within a research line that we have been involved for many, many years for many other applications. I'm ta- I can talk about five to ten years for many other applications because in this research line what we try to do is to uh, manipulate the energy of waves, okay, in ways that uh, we haven't been able to before for many other applications. Now, for this specific idea of applying this to invisibility, we started about two years ago. We started two years ago. We needed one year to actually refine the concept and to get to the point of uh, having a full mathematical, um, a full mathematical model of what we wanted to to do, and to and then we needed approximately a few more months to design the experiments and to be able to prove this experimentally, which I think is one of the uh, most interesting things that we have done because beyond the concept, we we, we have an experimental proof of the same. Jose, it is pretty amazing to think that you've been able to make anything go invisible. Now that next step to be able to have somebody move around, uh, good luck in making that happen. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you also for uh, your interest and the invitation to be talking here with you today. Job well done. All the best. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. Bye. That is Jose Azana. He has co-authored a study. Basically what they've done is, is they've said, okay, using whether it's fiber optic cables or lasers, can we make this object right here appear as though it is invisible? And he said the hardest part was to do it with a multicolored object. So they've been able to do that. They've been able to have waves of light going at this object. They go right through and it makes it look like it's not even there. Now, an invisibility cloak, like the one in Harry Potter, involves being able to do that when the object is moving around. And he says, no, 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 we're, we're not there yet. But this has been a massive first step toward, who knows, maybe making that happen. What would you do if you were invisible? See, that's where things get really bad really fast. Don't you think? We can't have a whole bunch of invisibility cloaks running around all over the place. We'll take a break. It is raining awfully hard 
seems everywhere around London. So do take it easy and do grab an umbrella if you're about to head out. Just the water going off the side of our building right now in City Centre in downtown London. It's, it's coming down in streams. So we've got an awful lot of rain that's helping to break the heat wave that we've been experiencing. Maybe, just maybe. You can click off that air conditioning tonight. We'll take one final break and close out the show next. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We've got news coming up at 3 o'clock with Lenny Lambrink. We've also got sports coming up, and there could be some news from the London Knights. We'll see. We'll keep you posted when anything becomes official. So, not even sure what this deals with but we'll have information for you just after three o'clock when an announcement does become official lots to do on the show tomorrow we're going to look at something that is happening in edmonton where they are trying to make roadways streets really safer and the way that they're doing it is to eliminate right turns on red so, speaking of the London Knights, picture coming up right out, and you want to turn onto King, and you want to make a right-hand turn. You can't. No right-hand turn there, because there is kind of a, a funny little island, and so they've decided no right turn on red right there. Is it a safe spot? Yeah. I don't know of any pedestrians being struck in that area. So, we're going to look at why it is Edmonton is doing this, and we'll look at pedestrian versus vehicle collisions. We were talking with Dr. Ezra Hauer earlier today. He wasn't able to be on the show tomorrow. He's, uh, he's away. But he has studied traffic for a long, long time. And he did send along this. He says, for what it's worth, research shows, and he says common sense tells us, that allowing right turn on red increases pedestrian and bike list or cyclist crashes. It was originally opposed by traffic engineers, but they had to give in during the 1973 energy crisis when the U.S. Congress saw right turn on red as an energy-saving tool. He says, one can live without right turn on red. Just look at Europe. So that's one of the things we will deal with. We will also meet a Londoner who is eight years old, and we'll be representing Canada at the Worlds in Karate, and we'll be off to the Junior Pan Am Games in February, and he will be participating in karate. He's one of the up-and-coming stars in that sport, and karate's been reinstated at the Olympics. So we will meet him, and we'll also talk about accidental falls and the effect that those are having, and we'll look at who should be responsible for accidental falls. Because, you know, you... You either have it around your house where you say, ah, I, I got to get to that patio stone. It's kind of it's kind of moved up and you know, somebody's going to trip on that. That's going to happen. Well, what if you don't do that? We'll see. Thanks to Christian Devino. Thanks to Devin Peacock. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.